0: As we look at Mark chapter 8, let me pray. Father, thank you that you give us your word. Thank you that your word uh, goes forth and you promise it doesn't return void. And I pray that the words that I'll share today, that that hearts would be changed. Your spirit needs to work. It can't just be the things that I say. The goal's not for me to be clever or to have some new insight, but God, that you would just speak to our hearts and reveal to us what it is you want changed. I pray for those of us who need conviction. I pray you'd bring a heavy conviction on us that we wouldn't be able to ignore. I pray we wouldn't get hardened by rejecting your truth. And Father, I pray for those of us who need a word of encouragement, lift our souls. And God, I pray that you would just speak in a supernatural way into each circumstance that's taking place in our, in our body that's here right now and in our, our city that's happening. And, and God, I pray that you would move in a way that's supernatural that only you could do that I couldn't even guess in these moments right now. God, your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Pierce our hearts. God, it is a mirror to our souls. I pray as we look at it that we would walk away and be transformed and changed. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As I mentioned, today we begin this series called The Invitation, and I just wonder if you've had some of the same experiences I've had with invitations. Have you ever before been on your social media outlet, whatever it is, it's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, whatever you use, some of you are younger, and you probably have stuff, I don't even know it exists, but you're scrolling through it, and you see your friends doing something, and you think to yourself, why wasn't I invited? It doesn't matter, it could be a birthday party, they could be out to dinner, watching a movie, just hanging out. It's like, why? Do, all of us want to be invited to things, but on the flip side of that, have you ever received an invitation, and it feels nice to be invited, but you think to yourself, what exactly am I supposed to do with this? Like maybe it says the day, you, but how am I supposed to dress? Am I supposed to bring anything? What is expected of me when I show up? And here's what we all know to be true, just in our, in our, in our hearts if we've ever had any of those experiences that a good invitation always sets proper expectations. A good invitation always sets the expectation of what's going to happen with you when you get there, what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to dress, what time to show up, where the place is, and lots of other details. And one of the most common places that we see this happen is in a wedding situation. Now, some of you have been involved with weddings this summer. Some people say it's the heart of the wedding season right now. Some people say it's the end of the wedding season. I was just with a couple this week. They renewed their vows. We were out at a park. And some of you have seen on social media. We're involved with different weddings. But I was thinking through wedding invitations, and I remember when my wife and I got married, our invitation just said where it was going to be. It was a formal situation for us. And we said, are you going to attend or not attend? I don't remember the exact language, you know, excited about attending, regretfully can't come, whatever it was. But there was two options. Apparently, it's become far more trendy to be more forthright with your guests now in wedding invitations. And so I was doing a little reading about some of them this week, and I found uh, one wedding invitation that had several RSVP options. One of them was enthusiastically attend, the other one was regretfully decline, which that's normal. But then they took it to another level and they said, regretfully attend? (laughs) You've all done that before, right? Like, I don't wanna go, but you gotta go, you know so and so and then you gotta do the thing. Or here's another option, enthusiastically decline. (laughs) That's my ex, I am not coming and I am happy I'm not coming. But then they took it to a whole nother level. There were other options on that RSVP, it said, well, say I plan to attend, then I won't show without any explanation, even though you already had to pay for me in the advance headcount. Anyone who's ever, ever hosted one of these things knows exactly what that's talking about. Or how about this one on the flip side of it? will attend and bring a date, even though the invite offered no indication that I could bring a date, but you're cool with it, right? <laughs> that was a box you could check on their invite. There's another set of wedding invitations I saw. One was really long, and it had all kinds of things. Like, what kind of gift are you going to give? And I thought, who asked what kind of gift they're going to get? And it had cash, gift card. Are you going to donate something to someone and pat yourself on the back and slight me in the process? (laughs) Gave lots of options on there for things that would happen. But the one that, that really intrigued me was, I don't know if you've been to the weddings where they'll have a full meal. They had a food section, and they were trying to set the expectations for the guests, and then also for them as the host. And so the first few options were normal. It said, roast beef, chicken, vegetarian. Get it. Could check boxes for those things. Some people put fish on there. But there was another box that said, I have a questionably legitimate food allergy. Which I thought, are you just trying to offend everyone in the process? You ever meet people and you think, that can't be a legitimate food allergy. In the first service, I said, it's like there's people that are allergic to lettuce. And I was joking about it. And then someone came up to me after the service and said, I'm allergic to lettuce. <laughs> My point Exactly. I have one friend who says he's allergic to ketchup, but he's not allergic to ketchup. I was standing in line with him one time at a place where you order right at the counter, and he said, no ketchup on that, I'm allergic. And I looked at him, and he said, I'm not allergic, I just don't like it. I said, you are a liar. Like, (laughs) Just what it is. Another box you could check on this food section, same invitation, said I have so many food allergies, you'll wonder how I'm still alive, let alone how I could expect to be accommodated at a massive catered event. Another box said, for the vegans, I'm a vegan and I refuse to share a table with non-vegans. Then in parentheses, murderers. (laughs) Tell it like you think. And then they said, and I wonder if they had a specific person in mind when they put this box on their wedding invitation, I don't get much attention from my loved ones, so I want to make the most of this. Please see the back of this RSVP for my extensive list of impossible dietary restrictions. I wondered if the people who wrote this, obviously they're highly sarcastic, if they really wanted to just have a box that said, you will eat what we serve. <laughs> but what they were trying to do is they were trying to set expectations. Expectations for the guests that were going to be there, and they wanted to have the right things for those that they were wanting to serve, of course. Because good invitations set proper expectations. And today we're going to start this series out of the book of Mark called The Invitation. Here's the good news about this invitation. Everyone's invited. Everyone's invited. Everyone's invited to come follow Jesus Christ. But here's the thing, he's got some very specific and very clear expectations for everyone that will come follow him. And so today's message is titled this, you're invited, but will you come? You're invited, everyone's invited, the question is will you come and follow him? Because he's really clear about what he expects for anyone that will come and follow him. And so today we're going to look at his expectations for those that will follow him. And the question I hope that you'll ask yourself is this. Do I meet these expectations? And if I don't, what should I do? My hope is not that you hear this sermon and go, I never thought about that Pastor, this way, or some of you have been Christians for a while. I never saw that cross-reference or some new insight. But that you'll reflect on your own heart and ask yourself the question, if I don't meet the expectations that Jesus has, what am I going to do about that today? so if you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 8 is where we're going to be. I'll start reading in verse 31. For those of you who weren't with us when we were doing the series that started back in January, the first part, the first section that we've already finished in the book of Mark is all about who is this Jesus. Mark chapter 1 and verse 1 says that this is the gospel or the good news. The word means the same thing. The good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then those first seven chapters just start showing the words and works of Jesus and how he is the Son of God and how does he reveal it? He shows his love without limits. And he loves people that don't deserve to be loved. And he forgives people that don't deserve to be forgiven. And he loves people that others perceive as unlovable. And you're like, what an amazing Savior. And then we see, upon in chapter 3, he shows this transition. You start to see his power. And you see that he is stronger. He's stronger than disease. He's stronger than the enemy. He's stronger than the storms of life. He's stronger than anything that can come against you. That Jesus is stronger. And then oftentimes, he puts you in your most hopeless situations to do some of his greatest work in your life. To show that he is stronger. And then you come to this part about halfway through chapter 8. It's really the climax of the book. It's where everything transitions. Where Jesus had these guys that are following him around. They see him loving without limits. They see him demonstrating his strength and his power. And he turns to them and he says, who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street? And they get it right for what's the word on the street, but not right for who Jesus is. But then Jesus goes right to their heart and says, who do you say that I am? Most important question anyone can ever answer. And Peter gets it right. He says, you are the Christ. And Matthew tells us, he says the next part, the son of the living God. That's Mark chapter 1, verse 1. That's exactly right. But here's the problem. They don't understand what that means. And if you don't have an accurate view of who Jesus is, you will have an inaccurate view of what it means to follow him. And so what Jesus does in verses 31 through 33 is he clarifies for them, I am the Christ, but it's not what you think. And so if you're going to follow me, which he's going to give an invitation in verse 34, if you're going to follow me accurately, if you're going to follow me the way that I'm calling you to follow me, you've got to understand who I am. And that's where we'll pick up. In Mark chapter 8 and verse 31. Peter's just said, you are the Christ. Then it says, he, Jesus, then began to teach them that the son of man, that's referring to Jesus, must suffer many things. So he's a suffering savior. They don't have a category for that. And be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. Well, That's something. Because those are the guys that most people considered the most righteous people of the day. So when Adam was praying during our worship time, it was, hopefully it re- resounded in your heart that God didn't just love us when we were doing our best. He, he loved us in our worst. It's kind of amazing then that Jesus is saying he's going to be murdered. He's going to be killed. Not by some wicked mob that gets mad at his teaching. He's not going to be betrayed by Judas who you know, sneaks in at night and puts some arsenic or whatever, poisons him in some way. He's going to be killed by the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders. This is not what they expected. And then it says, and he must, and that's a key word, must be killed, murdered. He, won't, he can't just die. He must. Divine necessity. This isn't just a prediction. He's saying, this is God's plan. This is why he came. He must be killed. And then he's not ambiguous. And after three days, rise again. And in this section... There's three times that he says this, exactly like this, to the point where you'd think, after Jesus is killed on the cross, his disciples would be like, well, it's been two and a half days. Jesus is going to rise from the dead pretty soon. That's not what happens. But he makes it very clear. Verse 32 says, he spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Little side note, this is extra bonus material for the sermon today. That's a bad idea. Don't tell Jesus that he's wrong about what should be happening. He is omnipotent. That means all-powerful. He is omniscient, all-knowing. He created you. He knows every hair on your head. He's got a plan for you. I love what Kay shared about Psalm 139, hems you in before and behind you. The reason why we do this is because we don't trust him. And he's not doing what we expect. And that's what happens here for Peter. And then Jesus tells Peter what his problem is. Because how do you go from one second, A plus student, you're the Christ. Yeah, ding, 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 you got it right. To what Jesus says next. He calls him Satan. Look. But then Jesus turned and looked at his disciples. And so apparently he turned backwards. Also, Peter got in front of him, which is also a bad place to be with Jesus. He turned and he looked at his disciples and he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. Here's why. Here's your problem. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. You want a king without a cross. You want glory with no suffering. You want comfort. You have this world's view of how this should go and how your life should go. And you're not asking about God's. And then he called the crowd. And here's the invitation. He called the crowd, it's not just the 12, to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Verse 38, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words... And this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man, that Jesus will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And so he's talking about when Jesus comes back in judgment. If you're, not, if you're not proud of me, if you're not excited about me being part of your life, not that if you'd one time deny, then I'm gonna. If you deny me with your life, I'm gonna deny you in the day of judgment. This is eternal stuff that he's talking about here. And then go back to the invitation, verse 34. After Jesus does 31 through 33, clarifies who he is. He is a suffering servant. He will die on the cross. He's dying for sin. Who's going to hand him over? He says, if anyone. And that means everyone. That means you're invited. And let me be clear about something. It's different for every person. How it looks for you to follow Jesus looks different for me. Looks different based on your gifting. Looks different based on your stage of life. Looks different based on when you live in human history. Look, looks different on where you in the in the world you're at. following. there are believers that will meet in Madagascar, which you know we've got a church planning missionaries in Madagascar. They will meet under a tree today. We have air conditioning. Amen. It looks different here. I'm glad for our comfort. Not wrong. It's not right and wrong. Just different. But with all the diversity and all the differences, the racial diversity, the ethnic diversity, the different nationalities, the different thought processes, the different cultures, you don't have to deny all your culture to follow Jesus, but there's two things that must be true of anyone that follows Jesus. And what Jesus does in this passage is he makes those two things, those two requirements, those two expectations, those two musts very clear. And the first one is you must deny self. If anyone is going to follow Jesus, they must deny self. So you're invited, anyone, but will you come? Because it's a costly invitation. And if you think about it, all invitations are costly to some degree. If someone invites you to their wedding, you just go back to the uh, illustration I was using at the beginning someone invites you to their wedding, that's costly. Maybe you'll buy them a gift. That'll be costly. Maybe you have to get different clothes to wear. It's costly. Maybe if you're in the wedding, it's even more costly. You have to run a tuxedo or buy a dress. Or If you're the one getting married, that's very costly. That's a life commitment. Not sure if you knew that. It's a life commitment when you get married. Some guy gets down on his knees and says, will you marry me? And you say yes. And you're, the two of you, that's a life commitment. That's a big deal. And if you say yes to go to this wedding, at the very least, if you're a casual attender, you're saying no to going to somebody's birthday. You're saying no to doing something else. Every invitation is costly. And you all know this. We're a family as a church. So I think I can say what I'm about to say. Um, If we do something as a church that requires RSVP, here's what the culture of our church is, just so you know. So we're going to do like the the fall festival, I think, in October. And so I don't know what the food's going to be. Don't hold me to this. But we've got to order a certain amount of hot dogs or whatever it is that we need to do out there. And so we'll send out an email about a month ahead of time to all y'all. And it'll say, are you coming? About 10% of the people, not that go to our church, but that will actually come to the event, about 10% of the people that we're going to come to the event will say yes on that day. About a week or two weeks later, we'll be at about 25%. When we're a week out from the event happening, it'll be about 50% of the people that are happening. The day before the RSV is going to close, whoosh! It's like a whole bunch of you guys decide to sign up. Let me tell you why that happens. You want to keep your options open. What if something better comes along? I mean, the church thing, that will be great. But who knows what could happen? Who knows? I'm, I might be on a free cruise that day. I don't even know what could happen in my life. You just want to keep your It's not that we're all a whole church of procrastinators. So you just want to, you know that if you say yes to this, you're committing to that, and you're not committing to something else. There's a cost involved. The cost that Jesus is calling us to with his invitation is the ultimate cost. Very few of us will die a martyr's death, if anybody that's here today. But if anyone is going to follow Jesus, it means death to self. He says we must deny self. So what does that look like? Who would do that? Why would anyone do that? And you look here, and let me go back, and I know I've already made the observation that the invitation is for everyone, but don't miss this. He says that when he calls the crowd to himself, he's not just talking to the 12. This is for anyone throughout all time. So that means this. This is not just for those who are super committed to Jesus. Sometimes when people talk about discipleship or following Jesus, we get this mentality, especially as Americans. It's an American evangelical thing. That I'm a Christian, but I just don't do that whole following Christ thing. Or I'm a Christian, but I'm just not into the self-denial part of it. I'm a Christian, but I'm good with Jesus dying on a cross. I'm not really interested in me having a cross. And I want to jump down to the bottom here and make one thing very clear. This is talking about things that are, this isn't a deeper level of Christianity. This isn't a new kind of commitment. This isn't, you know, ah, oh, just don't be so balanced. You need to be more extremist. No, no, it's not talking about being extremist. It's if anyone, and what's the cost? Verse 35, 36, 37, 38, it's all eternal. You want to save your life or lose your life? What is it profit a man to gain the whole world? Forfeit your soul, your very self. If you're ashamed of me, I will deny you the day of judgment. This is eternal stuff we're talking about here. Mark has no category for a follower of Jesus who doesn't follow Jesus. More important, Jesus has no category for someone who says that they're a Christian, says that they follow him, and doesn't follow him. So this isn't some deeper level commitment. It's if, Anyone, this is for everyone who would ever follow to come after Jesus, be a Christian, must deny self. But then you think about where we're at and the society we live in, and we are a very self-focused culture. We are the selfie generation. I don't know if you knew that or not. I saw people that I didn't know if you, if you do many of these. It's not judgment on if you do selfies, but I had somebody that was showing the other day how to do selfies so that you look better. And so stop taking low ones, apparently, because if you do it up here, everything's tighter. And I thought, well, this is relevant information at my age as I'm starting to get older. But then I had, I don't know if you've ever seen the advertisements that come on that you don't actually ask for on whatever your social media outlet is. And I had one that came on there, and I don't know what this says about me because I know the computer is smart about figuring this out, but it was how to give yourself a six-pack with like a Photoshop app. Let me time out and say this. If you're taking selfies with no shirt on, please stop. (laughs) I don't want to see that. But they had this app where you could put, it just had a regular looking guy, wasn't overweight, wasn't skinny, whatever. He just regular looking guy, put the six pack on, and then you can shade it to make sure it matches your skin. Some of you are like, which app? What app? (laughs) It's not real, just so you know. And then some of you, here's the problem with illustrating how self-centered we are with an illustration like that. Because there's a high percentage of you, that's not your thing. It's not vanity. It's not the outward appearance. Everybody wants to look nice. I'm not saying you don't dress nice, don't look nice, none of that. But that might not be your thing. And so you might be deceived into thinking that that means you're not self centered. And I'm going to bet that's not true. Let me ask you a couple questions. Um, who in the world makes the best spaghetti? Your mom. Okay, I heard of mom. Most of you don't want to say because you think it's you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> your wife, your mom. You're somebody that's real close to you, I'm going to guess. Who has the best looking babies? Some dude that you met at the airport one time? I doubt it. Somebody in your gene pool. If they're not your own kids, it's somebody in, I bet you, I bet you. Now, let me ask you this one if we want to step on some real toes here. Uh, if you're stuck in traffic, whose time are you most worried about? Is it the guy who cut you off a couple minutes ago and he's throwing wrappers out his window, three cars up? Oh, Lord, I pray that he gets to where he needs to be on time. Or is it more like fire from heaven you're praying for in that moment? Or the lady behind you is honking her horn. She must really be, I need to get out of the way. She must really be in a hurry. No, in those moments, 99.9% of us are thinking about us. Here's why. Because we're the ones that sit on the throne of our lives. We are the sun in which the universe revolves around our universe. We are the object of our affections. Here's the problem. It's called idolatry. And here's our big problem. Many of us probably stepped into this room today aware of our sin. And there might be sins that we know we need to work on. Your lust, your pride, your anger, your patience, what, whatever they are. But all of that's actually rooted in the fact that we think the world revolves around, we don't think the world does. We, our world revolves around us. David Wells says it like this. I'll just read it to you. It says, much of the church today, especially that part of it which is evangelical, that's us by the way is in captivity to this idolatry of self. This is a form of corruption far more profound than the list of infractions that typically pop into our minds when we hear the word sin. We're trying to hold at bay the gnats of small sins while swallowing the camel of self. And here's how we know this to be true. If you really want me to illustrate it, it's that most of us make even our spirituality, even our what we call Christianity, not what the Bible calls Christianity, what we call our Christianity, self, all about self. It's all self-centered. And so we want to have self-reflection so that we can have self-awareness so we can be more self-conscious. We make everything about self and ultimately what we're going towards, we don't say this, is self-dependence. That's an American virtue. But it's not what the Bible's pushing us towards. It's dependence on Him. So it's in our weakness. It's in our sin. It's in our brokenness. That, but we don't want any of that stuff. We want to be self-fulfilled. We want self-enlightenment so that we can be more self-aware, so that we can be more self-comforted. Even our spirituality is really navel-gazing. It's mostly just looking at us and thinking about us and how can we be fulfilled and how can we have meaning and how can we have purpose and how can we... It's self-idolatry. But Jesus says here, if anyone is going to be my follower, he must renounce self, dethrone self, take self off of the being the object by which everything else revolves. So who would do that? And you look through the Bible and you see some people who do it. But most of us as Americans, we just think, well, that was just a moment of sacrifice. So they did a, a sacrificial thing. And so you see people like Abraham. I was reading this morning, Genesis chapter 13. Abraham and Lot are, are going, they're both getting really wealthy and so the land can't support both of them. They can't hang out with each other anymore because they've got too much livestock. And so Abraham says, take whatever land you want, I'll go the opposite way. It wasn't a guy just being humble. It wasn't a guy just being selfless. It wasn't just in that moment a sacrificial time. It's a guy saying, I trust God with my whole life. He's in charge of it. He's in control of it. So he's going to take care of me, even if I end up in a bad spot. But most of us don't live there. We're a lot more like Peter. No, no, no. Jesus, you do exactly what you want. And I got a great plan for you. Here's how it should go. But you got a guy doing that. You got Esther last week. We talked about Esther. She's a self-centered girl. She's, but there's a moment in her life where things change. She's living in the palace. She's got every luxury. She's got seven maids. But then, then she says this statement, if I perish, I perish. In other words, it's not all about me. I will lay my life down for the sake of others because there's more to it than just me. And so there has to be this moment where we realize that they, life isn't even supposed to be all about me. And so It's Moses. We talk about Moses as a great leader all the time. But he had the option to not go out and lead. Those people that he leads, they're miserable people. They're entitled, they're arrogant, they think the world revolves around them, there's about two million of them, and they're complaining and grumbling to him continually. He, at one point, was living in the palace and had everybody coming and serving him. And Hebrews talks about it, says, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. So he could have he kept a short-term focus, he could have stayed in the palace, but he chose instead a life... Not because of some asceticism. See, self-denial is not this. It's not, I'm not going to eat chocolate for a week. I'm not saying there's a problem with self-discipline. It's not just saying no to those things in life that we want. It's saying no to you. saying no to self. And as I'm reading this passage this week and reflecting on it being honest with myself, because before I ever apply it to you, I'm trying to apply it to myself. I thought, why would I ever do this? And then I thought, and I thought at first it just reveals how selfish I am. I thought, unless... I knew that what I was getting was better than what I was giving up. Why would I ever actually give my life over to someone else? Why would, I, why, why would this happen? And I felt guilty because it was such a transactional thought process. And some relationships are transactional. Not all of them are, but there's oftentimes that's a factor in it. Like, hey, I ask you something. You say something. You do something back. And that's kind of how things go. And I felt bad about that because a relationship with God is just being with him. But then all the language he uses at the end is transactional language. And the last verses, verses 35, 36, 37, 38, you can't tell in the NIV, but they actually all start with the word gar. It's for, because. They're purpose clauses. Why would anyone ever do verse 34? Well, verse 35, 36, 37, 38, they tell us why. Here's why. Because for, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will save it. So you're getting something by losing, giving something up. For, because, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet, and look at this language, forfeit, yeah, forfeit his soul. Gain, forfeit, transactional language. Or what can a man give and exchange, transactional language. Give in exchange. And so the first thoughts that came to my mind when I was thinking about this transaction was this any transaction in life is like that. I, don't, I have not met a person yet. Maybe you can come up to me after this service. I have not met a person yet who sees a transaction and thinks, that's a ripoff, I should do it. We always think to ourselves, is this at least fair? Is what I'm giving up, whatever money I'm going to take out of my pocket or, you know, I'm going to write my credit card down, is it at least the same? Is it at least equal? Like if I'm going to buy that wedding cake, TV, whatever you're going to buy, is it what I'm giving, what I'm getting at least equal? Or in a good case scenario, what you're getting is better than what you're giving up. And so you see this all the time when people try to make you do a transaction. Have you ever watched the infomercial? Some of you might watch football today and they'll try to sell a fat head, and they'll like throw in a second fat head and then they'll lower the price of what's happening, or buying some ginsu knives, and they're like, you can cut pipes. I've never been at somebody's house where they're like, man, I really need to cut this pipe, but they'll they'll show it that way. Or there'll be like a pan, like a nonstick pan that's amazing. You can drive an 18-wheeler over it and it won't bend. But it's $49.99, and you're like, ah, that's kind of a lot for a pan. And then you're like, I don't know, I'll just keep watching the commercial. Wow, they're melting marshmallows, and it's not sticking, and they start doing stuff on the commercial. You're like, I don't know, maybe it's worth 49 dollars They're like, but it's not $49.99 today, not $39.99, not $29.99. It's $19.99. I have $20? <laughs> and then they go... And if you order now, you get two pans. Two pans! It's not like you're cooking twice, but still, it's like, two pans, it's great. And an oven mitt, and an oven, and a kitchen. If you call now, you get a new house. It's like, why aren't you calling? Because eventually, they want you to feel like what I'm giving up is nothing in comparison to what I'm getting. I thought, wouldn't it be easier in life if we woke up every day, because we give our lives to something, wouldn't it be easier if we were just clear about that transaction? Like if we woke up and said, here, I'm going to give my life for this, whatever it is, and we all have our different stuff. And so I started thinking about it this week, and I thought, what if in the morning you could get up, just say this represents your life. This is not about what kind of cereal you should eat. But but what if instead of waking up in the morning and you go after whatever you go after, if it was more clear? Like what if there was a promise like the infomercial will give, today you can have safety and security, you just have to give your life to it. So promise, you, you won't get cancer today. You, you, you won't fall and get hurt. You're not going to get a car accident. Nothing bad's going to happen. You'll have a very comfortable day, but just gotta, everything in your life has to go towards that goal. Will you, will you give that? We can be more clear on our transactions. Or maybe it would be that we're, our life is you know, it's fame or glory. We want fame or glory for us and praise. Everyone will think you're awesome if you just go towards, they'll admire you. Because of whatever reason, your six pack on social media, or your intelligence, or your ability to sing, or whatever it is that you do, just got to give your life towards it. It just costs you your life. Just all the hours you have today. Or, or maybe, maybe it's not fame, or maybe it's not that. Maybe it's money and power. Like you could have more money and more power, but you just gotta, all your energies have to go there. The transaction would happen. Or it can be lots of different things, based on maybe it's you have you want more pleasure in your life, and so with your you know so that woman or it's that guy or it's that food experience or whatever the thing is, and you're like you just got to go for it, you just got to give your life to it. It's yours. It's just, and you are constantly evaluating: is it worth my life? Is it worth all? And then you see what the passage says. What is it to gain all of those things? If you give your life, you can't get your life back. And if you have all those things, you're not going to be able to exchange them for eternal life. And so then the question becomes, what if there was an option that was more glorious than all the other options? So then I ask myself the question, well, if the Bible's true about Jesus, then it's clear. Because it's like Peter says in John chapter 6, remember Jesus gives really hard teaching. There's a whole bunch of people that are following him, a bunch of disciples. And then Jesus gives hard teaching and they all start ditching him. They start deserting. And then Peter says, but you're the only one with the words of eternal life. What if that's actually true? Or, or what if it's true when God says in John chapter 6 also, or Matthew chapter 6, he says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. You just come after him. You give your, give your whole life to him, and then he's going to take care of the details, but you got to trust him. Do you trust that he's good? It, that his love is actually better than this life, Psalm 63, 3, that he is the lion and the lamb. Think about that for a minute. You can sing that in a song or say that all lot. The lion can defeat any enemy. He's the king, the king of kings. What if he's actually the king of kings? And simultaneously, the lamb of God, who willingly walks to the slaughter to be destroyed for your sin and my sin the lion and the lion. What if he's, in this passage of scripture, he calls himself the son of man. It's the title that he uses himself the most, we're going to see it a bunch of times in, in Mark going forward. Son of man. It's actually a reference to a passage of scripture in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, what happens is that Daniel's having a vision and he sees the Ancient of Days, God the Father, seated on the throne. He describes him. So he's dressed in all white. It's like snow. He's got a beard that's white like wool. He's sitting on a throne that has wheels on it. The throne's on fire. The wheels are ablaze. There's a fire coming, a stream of fire coming out from the throne. And he says, "The beast is destroyed. That's your enemy." And he throws the beast into the fire. And then it says, "In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like the son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven." Think about how glorious this is. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority. What does Jesus say? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Not a temporary king. Not a little term that he has. He gets to rule. Not even rule in the world. It's an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Pretty glorious. More glorious than you? Worth giving our, the whole life? Would you give the whole life? Is it what I'm getting better than what I'm giving up? Because it, it brings to light when Jesus gives parables like Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44, one verse parable. He says, There's a guy, he's walking through a field and he finds a treasure in the field. And he goes and sells all of his stuff, but the passage says that it was in his joy he sold all of his stuff. Who in their right mind gives up all their stuff? The person who realizes what they're getting is better than what they're giving up. The guy in the parable, if you asked him, Why are you selling all your stuff? Why'd you sell that TV for a dollar? Why are you selling your house so cheap? Why are you doing this? He's like, Joke on you, Jack. I get that field. And the field has a treasure in it. You know who the treasure is? It's Jesus. You know what he promises in this passage? If anyone comes after, not my blessings, not my gifts, me. Jesus gives himself. Most people trust Jesus because they want forgiveness. They want some blessing. They want some gift. Are you really following Jesus? Are you cool if Jesus wasn't part of the equation as long as you got the gift? What Jesus is offering here is himself. The gifts are bonus. That's extra when you really get him. But if you're going to have him, you must deny yourself. The very thing that he did Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be held on to. He emptied himself of himself, he became a servant for you. He said, You walk down my path. If you're going to follow me, you walk down the path that I walk down. But that's not the only must. The next must, the second one, is to take up a cross. We must take up a cross. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. And imply the second must is also a command, take up his cross. He must take up his cross and follow me. If you do those first two things, then you are following me. And so what does it mean to take up a cross? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean very briefly. It doesn't mean what oftentimes we think of when we think of cross. When we think of cross, if I put a cross up on the screen right now, most of you would think of some feelings you have towards Jesus, a sentimental thought for what he did for you. That's fine in our culture. That's not what they thought of. And it's not what Jesus meant here. Some people will think of the statement when I say, take up a cross. It's the cross I bear. An American phrase, theology, I'm not trying to undo that. That's not what's meant here. What we mean by that is usually any and every difficulty that comes into our lives. Got a flat tire in the parking lot today. Just the cross I have to bear. My teeth aren't straight. Just the cross that I bear. God made my life hard. Or maybe it's really serious and maybe it's really difficult. Marriage is falling apart. It's the cross that I bear. No, that's not what this means. you got cancer. That's not what this means. It's not talking about things that have no, nothing to do with your following Jesus. They're just bad things that happen in this world because you're in a broken, sinful place. That it's not directly tied to your following of Jesus and it's a persecution. That's not what this is talking to you. What people who heard this heard was that you're to take up an instrument of execution Voluntarily. The image is, is what Rome would do, is that if anybody rebelled against them, they would force them to then carry their cross to the streets as a sign of submission to Rome. In other words, the one I formerly rebelled against, I'm now submitting to. It was a picture of obedience. William Barclay tells a story of when Jesus was about 11 years old. just to show what Rome's dominance was. When Jesus was about 11 years old, there was a guy named Judas, not Judas Iscariot who decided to rebel against Rome. He got his rebellion together and had these people and they went and they robbed the Roman armory. Rome found out about it very quickly and they dealt with it very clearly. They went and they burned down the entire town that this guy was from. It was about four miles from Nazareth. So everybody, innocent people all died in that, lost their houses in that, all that stuff. And then they took Judas and the 2,000 guys that were with him, they crucified them on the road so that everyone would see them dying to demonstrate their power that now these people... Have to obey; they have to submit. That's the kind of image that the listeners would have. They've seen people die on crosses. I wonder, when I think about that story, did Jesus see those people die on the cross as an 11-year-old boy, knowing why he came, knowing the continual temptation from Satan back at the very beginning of his ministry that you can be a king without a cross, knowing what Peter would say here, knowing the temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane. If there's any other way, to be a king without a cross, it's a real temptation. And most of us, if we're honest, we are fine that Jesus went to the cross. Isaiah 52 and 53, these bruised for our iniquities, crushed for our sins. But we want a Christianity with no cross. Do you realize that most Christians around the world today are very aware of what persecution is? It's just not happening here in America. So we get upset like people disagree with us. Persecution's coming. It's going to be mild, though, it seems. I'm not prophetically speaking this, but it just seems where we're headed is that we're going to get to a place where if you say that Jesus is the only way to the Father, which is what Jesus says, then if I say that from the that someday I'm going to say that from here, and they're going to take away our tax-exempt status. So that means that if you give money, you're giving it just to God. You're not going to get a tax benefit for it. I think you should get your tax benefit if it's available. I'm not saying anything about that. It's going to be taken away, though, eventually. If we say that marriage is supposed to be between a man and a woman, we're going to be labeled as hate crime and bigots and narrow-minded. You'll probably be thought of as not being able to think deeply about real issues of life or social issues. You'll be more marginalized. But none of that's dangerous. Nobody wants that. I'm not saying, hey, we're excited this is coming. But it's not dangerous. What if, can you imagine, if they started executing Christians on TV in an electric chair, and, and what Jesus is saying here is that you'd volunteer for that. You'd volunteer for the execution instrument. That's what he's saying when he says take up cross. And so what have they told you, hey, if you, if you name yourself a Christian, they're going to take your house away. They're going to marginalize you. And when they get the opportunity, they're going to put you on TV on an electric chair. Would you that? He says here, remember what it says, if anyone, anyone. Now, hey, I'm just not that committed. No, if anybody is going to come follow me, he must. This is a must. There's an invitation. It's for everybody. But but Will you come? where we live, that's not even part of our world. I don't know if you've ever been to Disneyland or not. Disney's an interesting place because it's in Orlando, and if you've been to Orlando, uh, you know there are some rough parts in Orlando. There's lots of tourist stuff there, too, and they clean that all up, but if you go into Disneyland, it's like a totally different world. I challenge you if you go to Disney to find trash. Like, it's just the lawn so perfectly manicured, you come walking in it's like, on cue, music, production, the princesses actually serve you. Like, what kind of fantasy world is that? Princes get down on their knees. They start talking to your kids. It's all exciting. It's fantasy land. Now, can you imagine with me for a second, imagine a child being born into Disneyland and only knowing that environment. They're born at the medical center in Disneyland. They, you know, Every night they have dinner at the Cinderella's Castle. They hang out with Mickey Mouse. The only thing they know about the real world is when they ride around on the It's a Small World. It's a Small World. And they do that whole deal. And so their whole experience of life is what they've learned from the plays and the productions. They've eaten the food at Disneyland. I know one pastor who says that America is the Disneyland of the universe. Can you imagine what would happen to that? Say she's a young girl. If they took her, they raised her there, they fed her there, and they, she, that's what she knows, but then they just dropped her off in downtown Orlando and left her and cut her off from Disneyland. What would happen to her? Where would she end up? Would she even survive? Let me tell you something. My fear for you is this. If you're born and raised in America, if your Christian experience has been trained up in most of American evangelicalism, you're that little girl. And one day, you're going to stand before God and he's going to say in Matthew chapter 7, verse 22 and 23, did we not prophesy in your name? Hey, I went to church. I prayed the prayer. I walked, I went on a mission trip. I served in the nursery. I did the things. Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out many demons and perform many miracles? Verse 23, i say, depart from me. I never knew you. It wasn't, you didn't you were, it was all about you. Even the serving you did, it was, your world all revolved around, you never denied yourself, you never took up your cross, you never actually followed. There's no such thing as a follower who doesn't follow. And what is the cross for Christ? Well, the cross for Christ is this, it's a picture of his obedience. I started to quote to you earlier Philippians chapter two. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he emptied himself of his Godhood to became a servant, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So if the cross is the ultimate picture of obedience, what is your cross? Because this is the kind of message where I could easily say to you, lay it all out, come down to the altar, surrender your whole life. But let's be honest, many of you have done that before. And here's how this thing really works, is that you do think you're surrendering everything, but then God's patient, and he is kind, and he is gentle. And he reveals another thing. And he reveals another thing. And he reveals the next thing. What's your next step of obedience? And it's different for each person that will be seated here. Everyone will hear these words. For some of you, it's your first step of obedience, is to come follow him. It's to surrender your life to him, to realize your sin, and that what he did on the cross was the only thing that could pay for that sin, and to trust him to be your savior. And meaning you're surrendering your life to him. God, how do you want to direct? What are you going to do? It's like Abraham. He says, I'll, you take the land. I'm, going to, it's all, I'm just trusting God to direct my life. For some of you, you've done that. And so it's the next step. Maybe some of you need to be baptized. We're going to be baptizing in October. Maybe today you just say, indicate you want to be baptized. Remember for some of you, it's another area. It's your talent. It's your time. It's some, some sin that you've been holding back. It is how selfish you are. It's your pride. It's your anger. It's one of those. What's the next area of obedience for you? That's what you do. You're invited. The question is, will you come? And if you're not doing, what will you do? And so you can enthusiastically accept Jesus' invitation. You can regretfully decline or enthusiastically decline. Please don't regretfully accept. Because what you get is so much better than what you're giving up. What are you going to do? Let's pray. Father, Father. I come before you and I just ask, personally, first, selfishly, I I humbly, before you, just say, God, how do you want to direct my life? What's my next step? And I pray for my friends and for folks that are here and some that I don't even know yet. And I pray, God, that you would just guide us and speak to our hearts in this moment right now with our hearts bowed before you. I pray, God, that you'd speak and show us if there's somebody here who needs to trust your son Jesus as their Savior, I don't want to rush by that. That's the most significant decision they'll ever make. I pray you'd speak to their heart right now. I have them call out to you and say, today I want to ask Jesus to be my Savior. For the first time, I want to come follow you. Or some might need to take a step of making that known and being baptized. Some might need to make it known and being more bold in their faith. And some might need to do something else. And there's other things for each one of us. And you know, God, what we've been doing, what our idols are, what are the things that we've been trading our life for, and we know that's not going to gain. What is it to gain all those things? And we want to lay that down before you. And I pray if there's anybody that's holding those things tightly that you'd pry their fingers off of them so they wouldn't waste their life pursuing them. For their own good, maybe take them through difficulty. God, we trust you. We do trust you. And I, I pray, I hope this is true prayer as I pray it for all of us. We give you our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.